This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Good morning and welcome to episode number 117 of Go To Grandma. I'm your go-to grandma, Kathy Buckworth, and this show is airing on Saturday, November the 4th, 2023. Or maybe you're listening to it on the podcast at your own convenience. Today on the show, we are digging into the past with gusto. Author Terrace Gresco's new book, The Lost Supper, Searching for the Future of Food in the Flavors of the Past, explores the idea that the key to sustainable eating lies not in looking forward, but in looking back to the foods that have been around through our one half million year existence as a species. This deep dive into the archaeology of taste takes us around the world and back centuries to discover the origins of foods, from cheese in Britain to insects in Peterborough. I'm not sure I'm ready for a grasshopper side dish, but Terrace's research and observations will have you hungry for more knowledge about the foods that we eat today. Then renowned Canadian actor R.H. Thompson is back on the show to update us on a project he launched in 2011 and has spoken about on this show before. The World Remembers is a charitable Canadian organization whose goal is to name every soldier who lost their life in the First World War, regardless of what army they fought for. He'll bring us up to date on where the numbers are, plus he has some exciting news about a book he's just released. And yes, of course, I'll be asking him if he will be reprising his role of Matthew Cuthbert anytime soon. Our Take 5 with RBC interview takes an updated look at the U.S. housing market, just in time for those looking to head south for the winter. And I'm not sure who invented coffee, but I'm sure glad someone did. I'm grabbing mine now as I invite you to sit back and enjoy the next half hour of Fun and Facts. Terrace Gresco is up first. Terrace Gresco is the author of eight nonfiction books and a widely read commenter on the interplay of food, travel, and the environment. His journalism has been published in the world's leading newspapers and magazines, including the New York Times, The Guardian, The Smithsonian, Gourmet, and National Geographic. Good morning, Terrace Gresco. Thank you so much for being on the show this morning. A real pleasure, Kathy. Happy to be here. Your book is called The Lost Supper, Searching for the Future of Food in the Flavors of the Past. And that title basically explains what the book is all about, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. Those subtitles are always hard to, to figure out, but uh, we finally settled on that one. And yeah, I'm looking into the deep history of food. It's like a deep dive going back, well, our species goes back 300,000 years, looking at sort of good ideas in the past to apply to the future because we're being told that we're facing a real crisis in food security uh, by mid-century. There's going to be 10 billion people and we're going to have to increase food production to meet the demand. So I was kind of thinking instead of looking to technology and technological solutions like lab-grown meat and soylent and stuff like that, why not look to the past? The, to the diversity of foods that have fed us over our long existence as a species. Yeah, and you go all the way, you know, as ancient Roman, you go back to the Aztecs, et cetera. You sort of take us, I'm sure the research was really great because you basically traveled the world, it seems like, looking for all of these ancient uh, foods and recipes and how to bring them into our world today. Yeah, it was, a, it was a really fun process. I mean, I go back even farther than the Aztecs and the Romans. The book starts in a place called uh, Chattel Hoyak okay. um, in central Turkey. It was the largest 
settlement, kind of a proto-city in the world 8,000 years ago. And I was going there because I wanted to figure out how they made their daily bread. And by going there, I found the grains they used. The archaeological remains are very well preserved. The kind of grindstones they used to grind their grain and the shape of the ovens. I was able to bring that back home. I live in Montreal. I've got two young kids. And my whole idea in the book was to go out there, look at these things, and then discover the foods, if I could. Mm -hmm. I wasn't always successful. And then bring them back home and try to apply those lessons uh, in my own kitchen. And I understand one of your sons is more of an adventurous eater than the other, which I loved as the mother of four kids. I know how that spectrum sort of goes. So you you really got to try some foods out on them and see what was not going to fly in your kitchen. (laughs) Yeah, Desmond uh, is uh, almost 12 years old now. He's always been a really adventurous eater. He's followed me on my culinary quest. There's a chapter in uh, where I go to Mexico City mm-hmm. to look at the long tradition of eating edible insects there. I loved that chapter. That was so well written. I really got into that chapter. It was so good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was fun to do too. And I, you know, I'm an adventurous eater, but I wasn't, you know, totally into the idea of insects, but eating insects. But in Mexico City, they're the most expensive things mm-hmm. on the menus of white tablecloth restaurants. So Desmond. I brought the lesson back home by taking him to the world's largest edible cricket farm, which is near Peterborough, Ontario, mm-hmm. in these old former chicken barns. And he was skeptical at first, but, you know, once he tasted the cinnamon-flavored crickets and the, uh, <laughs> and uh, I think like, he really liked the lime and chili ones, he got into it. Our youngest son, Victor, and he's, he gets mad when I say this now, he's neophobic, but, <laughs> I mean, if the shoe fits. But I realized he's also what people, so neophobic being he's afraid of new sensations. He watches very carefully what his brother does and says, well, maybe I'll try it. But we realized recently that he's also a super taster. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He really responds deeply to flavors. (laughs) I mean, uh, this is an example of the food in the book, but recently with a pack of Skittles, he was able blindfolded to pick out the flavors of of each of them just from the smells. Oh so my gosh. We, yeah, I know. That one's lemon, that one's orange, etc. So, yeah, it's we all respond to foods in a different way and my quest in this was to find lost flavors. Cuz I have this idea that flavors have been subtracted from the foods that we eat by the process of industrialization. You talk to, you know, your parents and grandparents, they'll say, the chicken doesn't taste like it used to. Right. The blueberries don't taste like they used to. The grapes are bland. And it's completely true. A lot of the food has just been completely separated from the source of all great flavor, which is the soil. And we're doing a big number on the soil right now, which is, of course, the source of all nutrition and flavor. So, yeah, you know, in this book, I was trying to figure out how to eat and the pandemic kind of helped because, helps because I had the time to turn my kitchen into a little mini food production factory, making sourdough and yogurt and cheese and kefir, all those kind of things. I was going to say that chapter in particular, when you were in Britain and the cheese, I love this sentence. Okay, you, you got me on this one. Whoever you are, you should probably be eating more cheese. Okay, you're like my best friend. <laughs> that is absolutely right. And the, the descriptions that you get into and where it comes from and it, and it evolves and everything, so fascinating. I think there's a lot that we just, we don't know. You've brought it all to light. It's, it's so great. Well, 
be careful. I don't know if you should be eating more sort well. of, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> medium cheddar in the plastic package. No, exactly. Eating exactly. more farmhouse cheese and seeking it out because we have great farmhouse cheesemakers here in Canada. I went to this visit this very brave family in northern England who are making the oldest named cheese in England. It's Wensleydale. Mm-hmm, I love it. Yeah, it's good stuff. But the stuff we get here is kind of the crumbly mm-hmm. uh, version. They were making the real thing. It goes back to the 12th century with milk from a critically endangered breed of uh, dairy cows. And wow, what a revelation. And what a way to turn you know, the fertility of the Yorkshire Dales, like all of those meadows there, they're quite isolated. And instead of selling the milk for at a very low rate, you know, a couple of dozen pence a, a liter, they're turning into this high-value cheese. And in the process, they're enriching the soil. They're bringing biodiversity back to the area they farm. So when I say you should be eating more cheese, farmhouse cheese, because it's really good for ecosystems and for your own health. And oh my God, it's delicious. And Wensleydale, of course, of Wallace and Gromit fame, you know, yeah. and you mentioned that in the book. And you also, I love the stories of Monty Python and the cheese shop. That's where we all learned a lot of fancy cheese names, I have to say, <laughs> was listening to that sort of thing. But each chapter in the book, you visit a different part of the world and you delve into a different sort of type of food and the source of it. It's a really great book. It's called The Lost Supper, Searching for the Future of Food in the Flavors of the Past. It is written by Tara Scresco. It is out now. I encourage not just foodies, of course, anyone who's interested in this sort of, you know, delving into the history of, I mean, it's really interesting stories, the way you tell them. I love that you you wrap in your sons and everything and bring it sort of to modern day. It's a great read. Hey, thanks so much, Kathy. Thanks so much for this, Terrace. And again, look for the book wherever books are sold. R.H. Thompson is a well-known Canadian television, film, and stage actor with a career spanning almost five decades. He has received numerous awards for his contributions to the arts and has worked to recognize those who are lost in wars. He is also the author of a new book titled By the Ghost Light. In 2011, in preparation for the centenary of World War I, he established The World Remembers, a charitable Canadian organization whose goal it is to name every soldier who lost their life in the First World War, regardless of the army in which they fought. RH has been able to persuade 23 nations to join the Remembrance and Reconciliation Project. He and his team have assembled a searchable database of 4.3 million names of soldiers who never returned from the 1914 to 1918 war, which is available online and at an interactive exhibit at the Canadian War Museum. Meanwhile, his work continues to recruit even more nations and find the millions of names still missing. RH is looking for a way to ensure that the database of names will be accessible for generations to come. Good morning, R.H. Thanks so much for coming back on GoToGrandma. It's your third time. I'm impressed. Oh, wow. Thanks, Kathy. I appreciate it. I really love having you on and getting the updates on your project, The World Remembers. I believe the last time we spoke last year, you had something like 16 countries involved, and now we're up to, is it 23? We're up to 23 nations. The you know, to become more and more inclusive to say, look, you have to remember everybody. It means um, there were about 30 nations in the war, and right now we're at 23. We're climbing. We're getting there. There's four, four and a quarter million names now are in the display that we show at the Canadian War Museum. That's just incredible. And I read your uh, short you know, intro to this, explaining a bit about the project was about, but tell me about why this, why this means so much to you and why your commitment came about to create this program. I got very upset that how, and it's been about the book, what well, the book's about as well, how we so easily forget those who joined armies to go fight. 
we love them when they're over there. And when they come back, we usually forget them. And I know we do it. We do it. We, we do it November the 11th to remember the collective. But nobody remembers them, mm-hmm. their names. And I thought, for one war, we should do that. And but that, but that is everyone. That's the Romanian Canadian community, the the you know the Francophone Canadian community, the German Canadian community, the Australian Canadian community. It's because we're so many communities. This country. Therefore, you do have to have an inclusive remembrance, saying, what about the Australian? What about the New Zealander? What about the South African? You know, what about the Italian? There were 560,000 Italians killed in World War One. Well, we're naming them, and Italy was on our side. So whoever thinks of them, and I say it's time to think of them. That's a way of, of binding us together in as a country, but also binding us together in, in remembrance. So explain for our listeners, again, those who were silly enough to miss our first two interviews, how can they search a name on the database that the world remembers if they know someone that's fallen? There's two ways they can do it. We run the display at the Canadian War Museum, and they project it on the wall of the lobby. And there's also an interactive kiosk at the War Museum where you can go and a touchscreen and what country do I want to look at? Oh, I want to look at the United States. And then you can read about and then you can search the American names. We have a version of that online at theworldremembers.org or theworldremembers.ca. So again, you can go online and you can go to search the names, and you you know you you got to you have to put in a surname and you have to think you know the year of death and the country, and it, basically you have a database of four million names you can look through. And if you look up John Smith from the British Army, you'll probably get 482 John Smith. <laughs> exactly. And then you try to look through them to find your relative. Yeah, that's so cool. And the names themselves are being provided by these nations that you're working with. And we are a year ahead since last year, as I mentioned. How are you going forward? I think you have seven nations left. Do you have some confidence you'll get those? Or where are we standing? Yeah, I need help. Mm. And I need help from communities, because I don't have any major funding. So say Croatia is newly joined, Romania is newly joined, Poland's newly joined, Austria is newly joined. And I don't have real lists from these countries. So I have to hire researchers and PhDs and, and uh, inputters and translators to dig through the files to build up the Croat list, to build up the, uh, you know, Austria is a big hole in the middle. I mean, they've... There's one group in Austria sent us 719 names. Wow. And I'm sorry, there's hundreds of thousands of Austrians killed. Mm-hmm. So I need help with that. And that's the only way we can expand if, you know, someone from the Austrian-Canadian community goes, oh, my God, how can I help? Well, I'll tell you. And it's building community involvement, too, which is also very helpful. It's also, you know, as you mentioned, driven through donations as well. And just to remind people, if they want to go to theworldremembers.org, it's easy to make a donation there to fund those researchers that you're speaking about before. With the display at the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa, has that really helped to push the project forward? And how long is it there for? They put the projected display up in the lobby in November, Mm -hmm. so they only show part of it. The kiosk is there year-round. I'm also, we've also got an agreement now with the American World War I Museum, and so our kiosk will be in the American Museum. Oh, cool. So all the visitors to that museum can look up a Canadian name, an Italian name, a British name, a French name. So we're trying to find more places. We really 
are looking for funding to put this interactive kiosk at Vimy in France. Oh, and I need help great. with that. Mm-hmm. Because all the students that go through Vimy, it's the magnificent Vimy monument, mm-hmm. they will be able to go and say, okay, if, if they're a French student, they can go, okay, I'm going to look for my great-grandfather's name, or Italian. So we keep trying to expand. But we need help. I mean, that's it's Canada. That's the way we make things happen. <laughs> exactly right. And you're making it happen, which we're very appreciative of. And what you've also been doing is you released a book, which is called By the Ghost Life. Tell me about the book and uh, what inspired you to do that. The book, um, unlikely that I should ever write a book. <laughs> it took far too long. I didn't know what I was go- going. I had a great editor. You know, early on, he said, Robert, you've written two books. I only want one of them. And so he said he wanted it more personal more so i it's trying to say to everyone look the stories in your family are really important you know whether you're ukrainian family from winnipeg whether you're an icelandic family from gimli whether you're uh, you know a family from the punjab who's now living in brampton all those stories are really important and there's got to be story keepers in each in all the families and unless the questions are asked unless you go and Ask your great aunt and your great great uncle. The stories will come sometimes die. So the book kind of looks at this landscape. I call it by the ghost light, wars, memory, and families. And when you try to honor the past by actually remembering it, and in this case, I also draw the line through uh, the First World War and how speaking to the Serbs, speaking to the Americans, speaking to the British kept cracking open my my expectation horizon mm-hmm. of what I should be talking about. I love the, the aspect of storytelling. It's a great reminder to our audience, grandparents, and maybe, you know, they still have parents alive that are can remember some of the family history to yes. really write it down. Um, you know, because we do talk about that a lot on the show, about journaling and writing down and maintaining that family history. And if you have old family letters, mm-hmm. take them out of the box and scan them. So we have scanned copies of all those treasured family letters. So if the box suddenly disappears, as we know boxes do, mm-hmm. there will be a PDF copy. And you can also send, you know, here's my great-grandmother's letters in a PDF, and you send them to everybody. So if you have those kind of historic things, scan them. Go to the library, scan them. It's a great way to keep the story going. Absolutely, and and that's where it starts, as you've mentioned, right? It starts within the families and spreads out yep. to the communities, and then somebody tells somebody, and then we have some more names, and hopefully those last seven nations. <laughs> I would never have created The World Remembers. I would never have written this book if my great aunt, Maiden Stratford, who is the young sister of five, five brothers, went over to fight in World War One. Of the five, two were killed over there and two died afterwards from from the effects of them. But unless she, as a 30-year-old and 40-year-old, it took her about 20 years to do it, she collected all the letters they sent back. She collated them into each, you know, here's Joe's letters, here's George's letters, here's Isabel's letters. And then she typed them out. And I know she really had a hard time doing that because it was driving her to Mm -hmm. distraction. But if she had not done that and left the family a legacy, I think it was 730 letters she typed out, that allowed The World Remembers happen. That allowed this book to happen. So we are indebted to the story keepers like my great-aunt Maiden for doing that kind of work. 
Absolutely. And again, the, it's called theworldremembers.org. Thank you so much for updating us on this. And I would be remiss if I didn't say greetings from your Matthew Cuthbert fan club, which is still going strong with most of the people that I know. Thanks again for doing this, RH. I really appreciate it and your efforts. Thanks, Kathy. I really appreciate it. Alain Forget has been working for Royal Bank Financial Group for over 42 years with sales leadership roles in Canada, the Caribbean, and the U.S. He is passionate about helping Canadians purchase U.S. homes and works closely with consumers, real estate professionals, and partners to assist Canadian buyers in the U.S. Alain is a licensed real estate agent in Florida and has his NAR CIPS designation as a certified international property specialist. Welcome back, Elaine. I think you have some updates for us on the U.S. housing market and even some thoughts on Canadians considering a U.S. property. Can you share those thoughts with me? Sure. Thanks, Kathy, and great to be uh, with you again. Uh, Yes, since uh, the lifting of the COVID restrictions, Canadians have had the opportunity to nurture their love affair with U.S. travel. Based on the 2023 U.S. Residential Real Estate Report published by the National Association of Realtors, Canadians represent the largest year-over-year increase in monthly arrivals in the U.S. with over a million among uh, all international visitors. And Canadians have been taking their relationship with the U.S. one step further by buying property in their favorite state. And while the U.S. Uh, housing market has slowed overall, and as we know, the loony uh, has weakened, of course, against the U.S. dollar by 8.1% compared to last year, Canadians still spend $6.6 billion U.S. in U.S. residential housing in the 12 months ending March 2023. When it comes to dollar spend by foreign buyers, Canada is second beyond China. Well, that does sound like a lot of U.S. property purchases by Canadians, and it is somewhat surprising when I think about the exchange rate and other factors like insurance. Can you help me to understand the buying rationale? Sure. Actually, property values south of the border remain affordable and attractive for Canadians. For example, in Canada's most expensive city like Toronto, the price per square meter is close to $11,000 compared with the U.S. destination in metro markets. And it's easy to see what Canadians find so appealing, like Miami, Fort Lauderdale, West Palm, which is about $2,100 per square meter, um, you know, like Tampa, St. Pete's, uh, Clearwater, about 2200 and Phoenix, Mesa, Scottsdale in Arizona at 2800 And Canadians are adapting to economic conditions. Uh, and in 2022, 69% of Canadians purchased their U.S. property with cash, but only 51% of the purchases uh, the most recent period were all cash transactions. With the weaker Canadian dollar, more and more Canadians are seeing the value of financing their U.S. home purchase. And the fact is, with a U.S. mortgage, Canadians can limit the one-time impact of foreign exchange costs by converting just a 20% down plus the closing cost. Also, mortgages in the U.S. are fully opened without any form of prepayment penalty. So you can pay your mortgage off faster at your choice. So there is really no need to play with the market timing and, and rates because if rates go down, you might see an influx of home buyers when that happens. Well, of course, which will most likely increase home prices. Well, these sound like solid reasons for many to consider U.S. purchase. Are there other trends and insights you can share from the report? Sure. For decades, Florida has been a popular destination for Canadians, and we all know, and we know why. In 2022, nearly 3 million Canadians visited Florida, which is just shy of the pre-pandemic levels of 
1.4 million. And Canada's travel preferences match their buying part are patterns of all home purchases made by Canadians. 55% were actually in Florida, 14% in Arizona, and 4% in California. And also 58% of properties purchased by Canadians were vacation home and rental properties made up of the following type of properties, like detached homes, 71% condos, 18% in townhomes at 4%. In fact, 47% of uh, purchases by Canadians were in beach and golf resort communities. Over the last several years, we've seen a demographic shift among Canadians looking for properties in the U.S. It used to be mostly retired or retiring boomers shopping for their home, a snowbird home. Now we see more Gen X and millennial buyers who are likely to spend a short period of time in the U.S. and want to rent it out when back in Canada to help offset their mortgage payments. And, and states like Florida and Arizona have strong seasonal and short-term rental demand, making you know, them more desirable for younger Canadians hoping to rent out their vacation home. So really, the real estate market on both sides of the border is complex and ever-evolving, and many Canadians are adapting to changing conditions and finding ways to turn their dream of owning U.S. real estate into reality. Well, this is why we check in with you, Elaine, because you always have the most up-to-date information for us. So interesting. And if we want more information on U.S. home buying, of course, we can go to rbcbank.com slash mortgage. Thanks again, Elaine. My pleasure. Past and to come seems best. Things present, worst. William Shakespeare. Certainly at present, there are many parts of the world that are sadly at war. And I thank RH for reminding us of those lost but not forgotten. And thanks also to Terrace for reminding us that eating sustainably is imperative to providing for what's to come. As a side note, I delved into the past myself recently when I took my two grandsons to Jurassic World The Exhibition. The dinosaurs are very realistic from the out-of-control but caged T-Rex to the baby dinosaurs being held by their handlers. You can even handle dino poop if you want to. The staff completely convinced you that this virtual and animatronic world is real. The exhibit is on until January 3rd in Mississauga, and I recommend it for all dino-loving kids and grandkids, quite unlike anything I've experienced. Looking to the future, I'm pleased to announce that I have joined journeywoman.com, a travel site dedicated to solo mature female travelers as a regular contributor. My column is called My Grand Journey, and I'll be providing tips and information on traveling with grandkids and multi-generational travel. I hope you'll check out my first column already up on the site. Next week on GoToGrandma, we drop in on another podcast dedicated to grandparenting. The Grand Life Podcast was launched almost five years ago by Mike and Emily Morgan, and we'll be chatting about why they launched the site and what they hope to bring to the grandparent experience. My friend and disability advocate Lisa Thornbury is back on the show to advise me and other grandparents about how to help support and manage a grandchild with epilepsy. Lisa's daughter, Avery, is part of the disability community, and she has epilepsy. Lisa will explain how Avery's grandparents are a part of her journey. Plus, a special Take 5 with RBC interview for Remembrance Day as we revisit a talk about transitioning from military to civilian life. Thanks for tuning in today on the radio or on the pod. I truly do appreciate you taking the time to join in and help this community of today's grandparents grow and prosper. I'm Kathy Buckworth, and you've been listening to Go To Grandma. Enjoy your grand journey. Share your thoughts on this show with us. You can find Kathy on Instagram at Kathy Buckworth or email her Kathy at Kathy
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.